Welcome to the Reorg Primary Review, where we cover the latest developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy, and feature discussions and issues affecting distressed debt, leverage finance, direct lending, high yield bonds, high yield municipals, covenants, private credit, and middle market companies. I'm David Zupkis. This week, Reorg's Jeff Burroughs speaks with Mike Best, portfolio manager at Bearings, to discuss how new primary issuances in 2024 will differ from last year's, what will drive primary issuances to start the year, how private credit and syndicated capital are coexisting, and more. And as always, we bring you our weekly summary of interesting developments in the restructuring world, as well as a preview of what's on tap for next week. We'd love to hear your feedback to help us improve the podcast experience, so please take a moment to complete the short survey at the link attached to this podcast and let us know how we're doing. It's Monday, January 15th. Before we start, I want to disclose this was recorded in late 2023, and time and references in the podcast should reflect that. Hello, welcome to the Reorg Primary View. I'm Jeff Burrows, a reporter on Reorg's core credit team. I have the privilege to be joined by Mike Best, portfolio manager at Bearings. We'll be discussing uh, primary issuance for 2024, what we learned from 2023, um, and all the intricacies that can come. Mike, thanks for joining. Thanks, excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. So to start, I want to look back on the year that we had. Thematically, how would you characterize primary issuance for 2023 and how might it be different in the year ahead? Sure. Yeah. I think that um, you know, 2023 was a, a, a year that came after a very anemic 2022. Um, we did see somewhat of a rebound in the market um, in terms of you know, issuance on a, on a gross basis was up you know, something like 20%, 30%, depending on, on which sources you use. You know, for us and, and what we looked at, we saw a lot of refinancing activity throughout the balance of the year that was, you know, really driven by, you know, a couple of maturity extensions, some amendo extends and those types of things. It was, you know, a year in which net new issuance really didn't increase. Um, you know, and I, I talk about net new issuance being things like, you know, M&A, LBOs, dividends, those types of things is, as banks and and I think the market more broadly needed another sort of reset year after a record, you know, 2021. Um, and so, you know, what we saw was that that those types of activities really didn't pick up for us um, really until the back half of the year. Um, I think if you look at it, it's it's really one of those years where um, net new issuance was was sort of lowest on record going back really, you know, 20, 2005 um, for, for both bonds and loans. Um, and, you know, for us, though, I, I think, you know, as we sort of look out into to next year, I think December was a very strong finish to the year. And, and we saw a lot of transactions, I think, the week of the 4th and the 11th uh, this month. We had, you know, sort of almost 20 deals in the market, which um, I think is, is sort of boding well for a, a more active calendar come the new year. Yeah, and I think one other factor that's going to play a big difference the year ahead is the last Fed meeting we just got before the year ended was... They hinted at two or three cuts for the next year. I was wondering how you how that plays in your read on new issuance. Like, did that meeting change a lot of how you're thinking about this upcoming year's credit coming to market, or did that not all change all that much your view on the the year ahead? Yeah, I, th- I think you know. Look, the the Fed is is very clearly having some messaging problems right now. But I think the the overriding message that's out there is that rates are are probably at their peak. And moving lower throughout the balance of 2024, um, certainly the the Fed zone little dot plots will tell you that they expect something like two to three cuts by the end of the year, and and the market is is obviously clearly pricing in more activity um, on rate cuts with I think six in priced into the forward calendar. 
you know, as, as we sort of think about, you know, what that means for new issuance and, and net new issuance, you know, I think it is really going to be dependent on sort of why rates are being cut into the year mm-hmm. uh, ahead. Um, you know, a soft landing case where inflation just comes under control and the the Fed can just become a little bit less restrictive is is really positive for credit um, a, a, on a broad basis. Um, and that means that, you know, issuers, for example, can sort of have a little bit more stability um, and a little bit more of a mindset towards uh, towards, you know, able to plan out their issuances and those things. Mm-hmm. I sort of I, I sort of think that if if the Fed is doing six cuts because there's some sort of macroeconomic issue and we're entering a recession and things are quite negative and rates are cut for that reason, that that, that could be negative. Um, certainly, mm-hmm. look, I think M&A could be you know, under some pressure if um, if we're, we're in a, a more severe recession. That's certainly not our base case and I think the market's base case for next year. Um, but, but I think that's really the key driver. As you sort of think about it, you know, loans versus bonds, does it really matter to issuers, you know, you know, sort of as they think about coming to market? I don't think it has as much impact. I think, you know, bonds, bond names and, and bond sectors will probably gravitate more to the bond market. Um, loans will will still be in favor, I think, predominantly for the the sponsor community uh, as well. Just again, most amount of flexibility for repayment and exits and those mm. types of things. This is really helpful for them. But you know, very clearly, we've seen with with rates at least coming under control in the back half of this year that secured bond issuance has ticked up a little bit. They're taking certainly taking out some of these um, these loans that uh, needed to term out the maturities. So. I think that is all sort of part and parcel, and and I'll see sort of the same playbook to begin next year. I, I want to touch back on one thing you said earlier, which was the reopening of, of sorts at the end of 2023, and Q4 had some large deals. I think the largest one that we covered here in terms of new credit onto the market was the Simon Schuster $1.1 billion new loan. But as you hinted at, as that opening do continues into 2024, are you expecting more multi-billion uh, leverage credit deals? I mean, basically I'm asking, do you expect to have a really crowded first half of the year for yourself, you guys? Yeah, sure. I, I think that, um, I think you're definitely onto something there thematically in the, in the loan market in particularly, probably mm-hmm. more so than in the bond market. Um, you know, what we saw in 2023 is, is really a return to things that have been more core to the broadly syndicated loan market over time, which is deals that are, you know, kind of in and around that billion dollar range, um, mm-hmm. plus or minus a little bit. Um, you know, 2021 was a year where I think the market got used to seeing five to seven billion dollar deals price. Um, and I'm not entirely sure that's going to really be the case going forward. Um, you know, certainly there's there's been some struggles with performance and some of that vintage in, in terms of some of those transactions. But but more broadly speaking, I think it's tough to look out on the horizon and see how M&A will get so robust that those types of, you know, big deals will come about. So, you know, we've we've looked at a lot of deals over the last three months of this year where where we've had some activity pick up. You know, the sweet spot has been sort of around a billion um, plus or minus a little bit. If you look mm-hmm. at sort of the core of the the syndicated loan market, you know, that's a that's a B2B rating. And the, the median over the last month of this year has been around six hundred and fifty, six, seven hundred million dollars. And so I, I think we're a far cry from the sort of multi-billion dollar tranches. 
Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm going to make that statement. And then, mm-hmm. you know, look, we saw 2023 in which I don't think we ever expected a lot of multi-billion dollar deals to come to our market. And yet right. we had two of them, you know, that weren't on the forward calendar to start the year. Um, World Pay and, and Copeland are certainly some of the largest transactions we had this year. And and those are really, you know, again, I think higher quality deals that um, I wouldn't be surprised to see those again. It's just tough to sort of have a, a great crystal ball on that. Um mm-hmm you know, looking into 2024. I want to touch on one more thing about the year ahead in terms of themes, trends, and then to go into a few other things. But if you could parcel a bit more, dissect a bit more the primary issuance, do you expect certain sectors to fare better than others? Do you expect issuance to be more event-driven or more on a day-to-day basis? The market could bring something uh, on, on those two facets. How are you seeing the year ahead? Yeah, I'll I'll sort of touch on sort of what I think the key drivers will be, and sure. then then I'll, I'll hit on sectors, um, you know, at, at the back end of things. I think M and A is is clearly the big wild card. I think that for for us, as we sort of look at, out after the you know into the new year, what we hear anecdotally from our our sort of sponsor relationships and our banking relationships is that you know people have never been busier. They've been looking at more transactions. They've certainly been processing them and and just really missing. It seems you know more or less on valuation. Um, like a lot of that has to do with the equity markets being at you know all time highs right now. It's it's tough to to find you know bargains out there in the market. Um, and then you know so that really leads us to sort of you know trying to figure out and triangulate where M and A will be, because as we sort of look at it, the refinancing market is always fairly predictable, has a much more accurate crystal ball there. You can sort of see things that are in the market when they're going to mature very clearly. You know, generally speaking, it's a proxy for how much debt you have maturing in the next two to three years. You then look at kind of coupons. Is it cheaper to refinance in the market or is it not cheaper to refinance in the market? And so mostly as we sort of look out in the next year, we think, you know, refinancing activity will be a flatter sort of year over year comparison. And that M&A is really going to be the wild card to drive it significantly up or or I don't think it can really I think we've kind of found a floor under M&A to be perfectly mm-hmm. honest so you know I think that's really how we're looking at the next year is that the refinancing number is is probably flattish to slightly up and then M&A is really the big wild card where you know none of us have a great crystal ball right now circling back to your question on yeah. sectors you know I, I think that's really difficult to suggest and and i always you know we always tell all of our partners that really no sector is off limits for us um and that you know we try to be pretty dynamic in, in that regard but if i have to pick sort of in reverse i think the colder sectors that'll kind of be out there for for issuance in the near term or, or around cable and, and sort of media telecom. Right. Um, in particularly, those sectors, you know, really have, have had a lot of the free cash flow has been eroded in the last sort of two years from the combination of rising rates and capital expenditure needs. You know, what we have seen M&A related there is generally speaking equity only type transactions, and they're not really able to add much more in the way of leverage. So I think those sectors are going to be probably pretty challenged to see a lot of new issuance there. In terms of things that might be a little bit, you know, warmer, um, if you will, I hate to use the term hot, but, um, you know, I think, you know, and, and partially, you know, this might be just wishful thinking, but I think investors and, and probably in the equity and debt markets are really looking for for decreased complexity. Mm-hmm. And, and complexity can come in all sorts of forms and, and fashions, but I think we've had a lot of years where, High growth sectors like software and technology have dominated the new issue market. 
Those transactions can be pretty complex when you look at them on the surface, not just about capital structures, but you've got sales forces and things that you need to manage through in terms of transitions and public to private takeouts and those things. And I think, you know, we might see a return more towards, you know, what I would call sort of the the simpler sectors in the world, which are, you know, things like manufacturing and industrial um, financial services, you know, energy midstream. I think, you know, those are transactions where investors, you know, really can get behind a little bit easier. That that decreased complexity point is super interesting. One other thing for the year ahead that I think uh, is not going to be different, but it's I'm curious to see how it evolves in your view is the past year, two years has been one of the features of it has been uh, the role of private credit as it uh, competes or works alongside the syndicated folks like yourself. I'm wondering how in any way you expect that to change in the year ahead, that 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 relationship. Um, do you think, you know, these two sources of, of capital learn to live together for the for the most part? Yeah, um, you know, I, I think that it's it's certainly been thematic the past couple of years. Mm. I think if you look back historically, you know, the world of private credit was really only about sort of smaller middle market transactions that are, you know, things that didn't, they certainly fit into the broadly syndicated market, but were much at the lower end of, of things that were being done in the broadly syndicated market. As it's evolved, I think, you know, you saw 2020, 2021 being years in which, you know, they were predominantly playing in a lot of the second lien transactions that were out there in the market and sort of unitranche um, type transactions in the market. And as we've evolved into, to, you know, 2023, and they actually have, you know, very significant amount of capital on the sidelines that they're still trying to actively invest. They've, they've certainly taken, I think, a few deals that in that billion dollar plus range that would have come to our market. Um, you know, what, what I would say is that, you know, I think you know, competition is always healthy for capital. It's healthy for issuers. It, it helps sharpen us as well as investors. Um, I think that, you know, you're going to see more processes in terms of, and, and certainly we've seen them, you know, this year, um, where, you know, a sponsor or an issuer will be pursuing sort of what we call a dual track process. And increasingly, you know, they're going to, reach out to their private credit guys and, and work with them um, directly. And then they're going to also be running a process with banks and what have you on the, on the other side. I, I still think that generally speaking, I think we'll see, you know, more overlap sort of between, you know, what I call the broadly syndicated, you know, billion dollar area kind of deals and you'll see more, you know, overlap. And I think, I think it's healthy. And I think that, um, you know, it's certainly something that's, that's going to likely persist. I was reading the other day that, you know, roughly $30 billion in market share was sort of the number that, um, and I think Citibank might have put that out, but it eroded, you know, in terms of taking broadly syndicated uh, market share. Mm. And I think, you know, generally speaking, we look out next year and we think that number will be very similar again. Um, there were certainly some transactions in this last year that were penciled in and expected to be private credit. They came about. And turns out they ended up in the broadly syndicated market. Right. And I think there were a couple of deals where, you know, the, the, the private credit market certainly took out, out deals in our market. So all healthy. And, and I think that, you know, those sources are definitely living together. You know, I won't say necessarily in harmony, but but certainly living together well. Yeah, as you said, the competitions, the competitions needed. Um, you know, last question for you, and, and this is uh, your last view into your crystal ball. Just how do you think bearings is set up to succeed in this year? What's what differentiates you all in in this upcoming environment that you know you'll make make the right picks, make good deals? Yeah, I, thanks. I, I think that 
you know, a lot of this circles back to sort of two themes we we sort of addressed just a little bit earlier. You know, I think the prevalence of more mid and, and maybe slightly smaller transactions in the broadly syndicated market is something that, you know, you need a deeply resourced, you know, research team in order to analyze and sort of go through those transactions. And I think we're, we're well set up, um, you know, to sort of do that sort of bespoke research and, and bring that knowledge to, to bear. I think the other thing is just that last point that we just touched on, which is, you know, Bearings as an institution has great capabilities in, in public tradable credit as, as well as private credit. We work together pretty well with our partners in, on that side of the, the firm as well. And I think, you know, we're going to be certainly set up to be more thoughtful um, going forward as I think those markets are going to increasingly, you know, overlap a lot more. Um, I use the term credit as credit. Kind of doesn't mm. matter if it's tradable or public, um, you know, investors, you know, want yield and want returns. And um, I think we're going to be pretty well set up to, to handle those trends uh, that they, you know, continue out in the next year and, and likely beyond. Awesome. Well, best of luck in the year ahead. I want to thank Mike for joining us and thank you all for listening to this edition of the Rio Primary Review. Have a good one. Have a good one. For in-court coverage this week, we take a look at Odyssey. SVB Financial Group, Westco Aircraft, and Lucky Bucks. Odyssey Inc., a radio broadcaster and provider of multi-platform audio content, filed Chapter 11 in the Southern District of Texas on Sunday, January 7th. Under Odyssey's prepackaged plan, the debtors would emerge with $350 million of debt comprising a new $250 million exit first lane term loan facility, comprising first lane first out exit term loans and first lane second out exit term loans, and a $100 million exit securitization program. Holders of $853 million in first lien debt would receive their pro rata share of up to 85% of pre-dilution post-reorganization equity, along with a pro rata share of second out exit term loans. The billion dollars of second lien notes would receive a pro rata share of 15% of pre-dilution post-reorg equity and warrants for 17.5% of post-reorg equity exercisable on a cash or cashless basis within four years at $771 million or 120% premium to the midpoint plan equity value. On Tuesday, January 9th, SVB Financial Group announced its entry into a restructuring support agreement with the Davis Polk represented ad hoc group of senior note holders holding 48.7% of senior notes, the official committee of unsecured creditors, and certain other supporting creditors. The proposed restructuring outlined in the term sheet filed by SVBFG would establish both a new co and a liquidating trust that would receive the debtor's claims against the FDIC, investment securities, and other assets. The debtor also filed cleansing materials with valuation information for certain assets, including bids for the debtor received by SVBFG's non-debtor SVB Capital business. SVBFG continues its battle with the FDIC to recover approximately $1.93 billion of account funds formerly held in accounts at Silicon Valley Bank. On Tuesday, debtor disclosed that the FDIC denied the account claim in its capacities as a receiver for SVB and Silicon Valley Bridge Bank, N.A. Judge Marvin Isger approved the Westco and Cora debtors' disclosure statement for solicitation at a hearing on Thursday, January 11th, after the 2024-2026 formerly secured noteholder group challenging the company's 2022 up-tier exchange dropped its argument that approval was premature at the judge's urging. Judge Isger made clear, however, that he may decide not to proceed with a scheduled February 27th confirmation hearing if uncertainty surrounding the 2024-2026 noteholder's position in the debtors' capital structure remains. Judge Isger also said he'll try to issue a ruling on dispositive motions and up-tier litigation by Friday, but noted that his decision would leave substantial issues open for resolution. The judge questioned the wisdom of proceeding with a confirmation of a plan that assumes the validity of the up-tier despite the 2024-2026 noteholders' claims to restore their liens potentially remaining unresolved. 
On Tuesday, reorganized coin-operated amusement machines operator Lucky Bucks, now known as Art Gaming Technologies, sued 10 former owners and employees, including founder Anil Damani, and their affiliates in Georgia State Court, alleging a criminal conspiracy to, to loot the company once it became clear it would file for bankruptcy. According to the company, the defendants concocted a number of schemes to loot Lucky Bucks, including borrowing hundreds of millions of dollars from lenders and banks. The creditors took ownership via the operating debtors' chapter 11 plan and diverting the proceeds. Specifically, the company points at $200 million in dividends paid to Damani and others in July 2021 from the company's $610 million senior secured credit facility. EchoStar Core, the new parent company of Dish Network, unveiled a series of strategic internal transactions that appear to be the precursor to subsequent potentially transformational follow-on deals. As part of the transactions, Dish Network subsidiary DBS designated a number of entities as unrestricted subsidiaries and assigned its rights as lender under an intercompany loan receivable valued at $4.7 billion to EchoStar Intercompany Receivables Co., a wholly owned subsidiary of EchoStar Core. Additionally, Dish Network transferred a number of Spectrum licenses to EchoStar Wireless Holding LLC. The initial internal transactions adversely affected credit support for both for the bonds of both Dish Network Core or DNC and Dish DBS Core or DBS. Conversely, the transactions benefit EchoStar Core or Topco and its public equity holders because it receives billions of dollars of value in spectrum licenses and has a $4.7 billion intercompany loan from DNC. An ad hoc group of dish secured and unsecured bondholders as well as convertible note holders has organized with Millbank as counsel and Lazard as financial advisor, according to sources. Gall said during a meeting with creditors this week that it seeks to raise hundreds of millions in new money. The ask is potentially sized at $800 million. The airline did not specify in what form the new money would be, and stakeholders in the capital structure are expected to pitch the company. Gall is working with Alex Partners, an ad hoc group of holders of Gall's secured bonds due 2026 is working with Molis as financial advisor and Hogan Levels as counsel. An ad hoc group of arrivals 3.5% convertible unsecured notes due 2026 is organized with McDermott, Will, and Emery as legal advisor to evaluate its options as an event of default has occurred under the bonds. An ad hoc group of lenders to United Site Services has organized with Aiken Gump as legal advisor as a provider of portable toilet services that may need a liquidity boost. Top Red Stories this week included 2024 Outlook, liquidity is king in a new era of liability management. 2023 ends on a high note in the U.S. Fitch cuts ratings on China's four national bad debt managers. SBB halts interest payments on hybrid notes. Court opinion review. Endo abandons Section 363 sales strategy. Mercon Coffee dip rejected. Sinclair strikes out in DSG. Judge Isger notes grave due process concerns related to former Judge Jones' undisclosed relationship. And now here's Kate Thomas in New York bringing you The Week Ahead. Welcome to The Week Ahead. My name is Kate Thomas, and here are a few highlights from a crypto-packed upcoming week. A longer schedule of the week's events can be found on the Reorg website under America's Week Ahead. Kicking things off on Tuesday morning, the core scientific debtors seek plan confirmation. The debtors filed a fourth amended plan of reorganization in late December that incorporates a new settlement with the official committee of unsecured creditors and pre-petition lender and former dip lender B. Riley. The amended plan alters the treatment of convertible notes and unsecured claims, among other classes. Earlier this month, the debtors paid off their dip financing and said that they expect to emerge from bankruptcy by the end of this month. On Wednesday, Coinbase will be arguing for dismissal of the SEC's enforcement suit alleging that Coinbase operates as an unregistered exchange, broker, and clearing agency, and that it sold unregistered securities through its staking program. 
Coinbase argues that none of the relevant digital asset transactions identified in the complaint qualify as securities as none transferred any contractual rights for investment or future profits. In its response, the SEC argues that the applicable legal standard, Howey, does not require the existence of a formal investment contract. Instead, Howey centers on whether investors have a reasonable expectation of profit, which may be, quote, based on representations made outside of any formal contract, unquote. On Friday, it's Binance's turn to face the SEC in court when it will seek dismissal of a very similar enforcement action. The SEC alleges that Binance and its co-defendants offered unregistered digital asset securities to subvert federal securities laws and profit off of U.S. investors. Binance asserts that crypto tokens like Bitcoin are not securities under existing laws because they lack key features of investment contracts and are therefore outside of the jurisdiction of the SEC. That's it for now. For more on the week ahead, check out America's Week Ahead on the Reorg website and have a great week. Thank you again for tuning in to the Reorg Primary Review and our weekly review. Find all our podcasts on the Reorg.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Have a great Martin Luther King Jr. holiday and take care and see you next week.